0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Sally Sharif, and today we are discussing Salafism and Political Order in Africa by Sebastian Elischer, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2022. Sebastian Elischer is an associate professor of political science at the University of Florida. His research is focused on political Islam, violent extremism and ethnicity, and democratization in sub-Saharan Africa. He is the author of Political Parties in Africa, uh, Ethnicity and Party Formation, Cambridge University Press uh, 2013. Sebastian, thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, I really liked your book, Sebastian, because um, of the sophisticated theory it builds uh, about the rise of Salafism in Africa, and uh, its rich empirical detail. I want to talk about the book, um, its implications for policymakers, and how the theory travels to other parts of the world. So get comfortable. Um, No
1: no pressure then.
0: (laughs) First, um, the book's title includes two maybe disparate concepts: uh, Salafism and political order. I want to start with the big bang of all questions: uh, Is this a book about religion or the state?
1: Hmm. So I would say, in the first instance, this is a book about the African state because it challenges conventional notions of weak statehood. Now, the the African state is weak in terms of its bureaucratic administrative capacity, but I argue in the book that African states can make up for their weakness through the formation of tacit and informal alliances with civil society groups. So, So at the heart of the book is the question of how states engage with powerful and influential groups who, at least in theory, want to do away with the state as the primary unit of managing day-to-day life.
0: Right. That's a a good uh, springboard to sort of jump us into the conversation. Um, So so it's a book about the state, about African state. Um, Now, talking about religion, Um, Salafism as an ideology um, became well known in the West uh, with the rise of ISIS, uh, the Islamic state group in uh, Syria and Iraq. And I would say is an ideology that is most uh, associated with the Middle East. But your book discusses Salafism in multiple African countries. Uh, So I want to know where did the idea for the book come from? And what happened for you to say, let's write a book about Salafism in Africa?
1: Well, the short answer to that would be serendipity. Um, In 2013, I had the opportunity um, to survey the religious or the Islamic landscape um, in the Republic of Niger for a project that was uh, organized by the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. And it was for a, a basic research project that was funded by the Luce Foundation. Um, And at the time, many analysts in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere were convinced that Niger was bound to follow Nigeria or Mali's political trajectory. And as I found myself in Niger, um, I had the opportunity to talk to many Nigerian uh, clerics, but also Nigerian state administrators, and they expressed their disagreement with that view. And they also explained to me why they disagreed. And this is where, for the first time, this notion of an organizational gatekeeper in the religious sphere um, appeared on my radar as an important intervening variables for for things that we as scholars of African politics um, try and explain. So the book would not have been possible without these initial conversations. And I also realized that even though many African scholars rightly um, highlighted the importance of religion in day-to-day life in Africa, but also in day-to-day politics in Africa, there was a lack of a sort of a comparative historical study about uh, the emergence of more orthodox Islamic strands and their consequences for political order.
0: Right, I like I like how serendipity gets a lot of credit for all the books we write and all the research we do. Um, okay, so let's talk about this orthodox form of um, Islam, Salafism. Um, some of our listeners might not be completely clear on uh, the contours of this concept. Could you define it for us? Where did Salafism come from, and how did it um, spread to Africa?
1: So, so every definition of Salafism kind of triggers some scholarly resentment, and, and so there is no, no agreement about um, what Salafism is, but it's generally conceived of uh, as an orthodox or some would say fundamentalist strand of Islam. It is one of the oldest schools of thought uh, within the Islamic faith, and it refers to Muslims that try and emulate the three generations uh, following the Prophet Muhammad, so allegedly the Golden Age of Islam. Um, what, what, what unites all Salafis is that they preach a literal interpretation of the foundational texts of Islam. And so, so in these interpretations, there is uh, little to no room uh, for local contexts and, and, and local traditions. It's impossible to know um, when Salafism first emerged in Sub-Saharan Africa. It probably predates European colonialism. Um, But we do know that it sort of grew from the 1950s onward when a growing number of African scholars received their theological training in Egypt and in Saudi Arabia. And it certainly became a larger, visible and really viable uh, um, societal and religious movements from the 1970s onward when many African countries engaged in cultural cooperation arrangements um, with the Arab world.
0: Interesting. Uh, what, about, what about jihadi Salafism? Because this is not a book about Salafism on its own as, as an Islamic, um, as a strand of Islam, right? Um, and how is... Uh, how is jihadi Salafism different from political Salafism? Um, is this a case of uh, peanut butter and jelly? Uh, can you have them separately, jihad and Salafism, or, or do they um, always go together?
1: So what I do in the book is I use a well-established typology that distinguishes between you know different modi of operandi between uh, different um, Salafi groups. And and that's the distinction between sort of quietest Salafis, so so, uh, clerics and followers that confine their activities to the religious sphere, um, um, sort of the the quietest element, and then the activist element. And and as you rightly said, um, the activist elements uh, um, are either jihadi Salafis or political Uh, Salafis. The fact that scholars label both as activists should not distract from the fact that jihadi Salafis and political Salafis are fundamentally different groups and they pursue fundamentally different strategies. So so political Salafis try and make a difference by becoming involved in political contestation and political participation. And as such, they make use of... um, um, you know, uh, general instruments or tools that that other interest groups in, in a democratic society uh, uh, are resorting to. So, so they form political parties or they form political lobby groups and support existing political parties. And they do that um, to bring about um, far-reaching changes um, to secular societies. Um, so those are, by and large, democratic forces um, that try and change their society through democratic means um so in in that sense there is there is nothing absolutely nothing violent or or particularly radical about them um and 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 as such they're very different from jihadi salafis um, who resort to violence to violence to see through their goals um so the two strands are conceptually separate um empirically, in some countries, though, they have developed in tandem. So, so in the book, that's that's the case, for example, uh, in, in Mauritania, where political and, and, and jihadi Salafis um, grew together as a movement uh, under the roof of, of one um, organization. Um, they mostly do not go together empirically, and, and the book demonstrates that. Um, However, and and other scholars have alluded to this, political Salafism can turn into uh, uh, jihadi Salafism. But for that to occur, uh, what happens is that the state and state authority uh, often target political Salafism and denounce political Salafis uh, as radicals or as potential terrorists. So, So in order to understand why some political uh, Salafis um, turn into jihadi Salafis, one needs to understand the actions of the state. So the state is an important intervening variable here. And the book shows that that this is kind of the case in two countries that the book covers, um, in Mauritania and in Kenya, where the state turns violence against uh, political Islamic groups or political Salafi groups in both countries. And as a result of indiscriminate state repression, um, these elements see no other solution than to turn to violence to uh, uh, fight for or realize uh, uh, their interests. But as a general rule, uh, the two do not go together.
0: Right. I I actually really like the book because you make this uh, (laughs) nice peanut butter and jelly sandwich for us, bringing together political Salafism and Jihadi Salafism and show how they come together in some cases. All right, but we will get to the argument uh, soon, I promise. Uh, So, uh, Sebastian, we know each other from our time at the University of Notre Dame, and you had previously given me, uh, let's say, elevator pitches of this book. What I had not realized until I read it for this podcast was that the book actually explains terrorism and civil war in Africa, and is closer to my field of research than I thought. Uh, In a way, it explains why some states acquire the capacity to regulate religious activity, which might um, otherwise fall in the trap of extremism. Um, Did you intend to write the book as such, or was explaining variation in terrorist activity uh, a byproduct of the theory?
1: (laughs) That's a great question. And and I'm afraid the answer to that is not that clear cut. So when I started out um, thinking about variation in terrorist activity um, across the Sahel initially, I would say that at the beginning, explaining the variation that you just referred to, clearly motivated me um, to start thinking about the variation, but to start more systematically about state Islamic relations um, in the Sahel and later also in in East Africa. So the book aims to do more than to account for the absence or the presence of homegrown jihadi extremism um, across Africa. The, The book... Aims to take a closer look um, at how West and East African states engage with their respective Salafi communities and how, in doing so, they create organizational gatekeepers in the religion sphere and what the sort of unintended long-term consequences of these gatekeepers are. So I would say it started out by looking at variation in terrorist activity. But I realized that to fully answer or or understand that variation, a much broader look at state religious relations was necessary.
0: Interesting. So following that response, I want to urge all scholars of civil war, terrorism, and conflict resolution to read the book. Uh, Some civil war scholars, myself included, sometimes have a short-term memory of conflict. Uh, but this book really provides the kind of perspective on societal, religious, and political divisions that we sometimes ignore when we um, prescribe conflict resolution mechanisms like peace agreements or power-sharing pacts. All right, so my next question has to do with case selection. Now, it's common to talk about a book's argument first and then go over its methodology, but uh, but I'm fascinated by this book's uh, research method. and want to talk about it first, if it's okay with you. Um you pick 10 countries in sub-Saharan Africa to study state relations with Islam. Uh, why 10 and uh, why these 10?
1: So the book identifies conditions that enable states to steer religious activity. Um, and it's particularly interested in the conditions under which the state becomes a demobilizer or a mobilizer of homegrown jihadi salafism. Um, so, so for the theory generating cases, so, so the cases that made me formulate my theory in the first place, this required the selection of countries that were in geographical proximities to areas where jihadi ideology and activity had been operating for some time so so in other words i needed cases where there was the necessity for the state to become involved in religious affairs or cases where non-involvement in religious affairs could a priori reasonably be expected to have consequences for order and security So the theory generating cases are uh, Niger, Mali, and Mauritania, because they are in close proximity to Algeria and uh, jihadi groups operating there. Chad, which is in close proximity to Sudan, where jihadi ideology had been operating for a long time. And Kenya and Uganda, which are in close proximity um, to Somalia. So those are the six theory-generating cases, and then there are four theory-testing cases, and those are cases that that lend themselves uh, to to test the argument further, and I explain in the book why that is the case. Uh, The argument that has come out of this book covers two-thirds of of Muslim life in sub-Saharan Africa, and thus covers a, a, a really substantial number. Uh, um, um of individuals and and of countries.
0: Interesting. So you use uh, using these ten uh, uh, countries, you use a comparative, inductive and historically grounded analysis of uh, the evolution of state Islam relations. Um, can you tell us about this method a little? How is it um, inductive and comparative and historically grounded?
1: So, so inductive uh, simply means that it, it's, its primary purpose is um, to engage in theory generation, uh, not necessarily in theory testing. And as a result, this study started out as theoretically open-ended. Um, I said before that this started out on a research trip to Niger in 2013. Um, and when I worked on this for, for a long time, I didn't know what, what the, the, the theoretical findings uh, uh, ultimately, would would turn out to be so. So that's another way of saying that uh, the empirical data uh, uh, builds builds on each other. Um, it's historically grounded in the sense that um, I try and take a a, a long view. Um, I, I try and examine state Islamic relations um, over a long period of time, so between the nineteen fifties to roughly two thousand. Uh, and nineteen, so we're talking about um, um, seven decades there, starting in the pre-independence uh, period, uh, leading to what many now refer to as the war against terrorism in the Sahel um, and in East Africa. And it's comparative because it looks at various parts uh, in Africa. It's comparative across time as well as across space.
0: Nice. Um- Yeah, like I said, I was very interested in this long durée uh, of um, state religion relations that um, you look at. Okay, now we're ready for the book's argument. Uh, The core argument of this book is that the state is either a mobilizer or demobilizer of homegrown jihadi Salafism. Um, It is crucial whether African states had established organizational frameworks for Islam and Muslims in their countries before the 1970s when Saudi Arabia and other Arab nations started promoting the Salafi creed in sub-Saharan Africa. So in a way, if an African state had not already built these gatekeeping institutions, then it would lose authority and face homegrown jihadi groups such as the Boko Haram. Uh, which would be familiar to everyone. Um, this seems to me um, to be a theory of state-society relations um, um, in the tradition of Joe Mcdowell. Would you would you frame it as such?
1: Yes. So so the book shows that the organizational landscape in which Islamic life is unfolding differs wildly across sub-Saharan Africa, and and to understand this variation and the consequences of this variation. Uh, we, we must search for informal and tacit alliances between state authorities and those elements within the Islamic sphere um, that is accommodative or supportive of state authority. And, and that, that argument is, is very much in the tradition of Joe McDowell.
0: Right. I want to continue with the argument and ask you a few more questions. Um, could you explain to our listeners how an African state could build these gatekeeping institutions to control Islam or Muslim life. And, and and I guess the question is, why wouldn't a state build them to regulate religious activity in a country in the first place?
1: Okay, so let me talk a little bit more about the main argument here. Um, the book is largely about uh, the formation of what I label state-led national Islamic associations. So that's the name given to um, those organizational gatekeepers that we've been talking about. Um, These associations are created on the initiative of the state. um, And these associations have the informal mandate to regulate access to the national religious territory. And this close cooperation between state authorities and um, Islamic groups that support state authority um, and and uh, accommodate uh, a secular order um, provides the state with the organizational resources to do any of the following: um, to identify and isolate challenges to state authority, um, to provide resources to non-orthodox Islamic associations and groups. Uh, to co-opt, potential challenges to state authority. Um, But also, and this is a little bit counterintuitive, uh, uh, the ability for for state leaders to distinguish or to make that crucial distinction between the Islamic sphere as a whole and challenges to state authority within within that sphere. And that occurs through regular consultations. The important thing also to note here is, and and scholars of state-Islamic relations have highlighted this, these institutional gatekeepers were created and used for an authoritarian purpose, uh, to isolate politically assertive Salafis. Of course, in the 1970s, when these organizational gatekeepers came into being, there was no reason to worry about jihadi Salafism, because the radicalization of the Salafi creed is very much something um, that occurred in recent decades. By the 1970s, autocratic state leaders in Africa very often were concerned about Salafis because they didn't fear the authoritarian state. They criticized secular authority for being authoritarian and for cracking down on basic democratic rights and for being secular. Um, so, so the initial purpose of these gatekeepers is fundamentally different from the, the, the purpose uh, that, that they have today, largely, uh, but not exclusively. Um, your question was, why wouldn't a state build them? Well, uh, countries whose authoritarian leaders in the 1970s, and examples here clearly would be Mauritania and Mali, viewed Salafism as a political resource did not create these institutional gatekeepers. Um, For example, in in Mauritania, Salafism was seen as a resource against uh, the Maoist movement and and, and other communist movements. So the interesting thing here is, in these countries, religious liberty also uh, served um, an authoritarian purpose. Um, So uh, what I argue in the book is authoritarian uh, leaders made a strategic decision. Uh, which religious groups are beneficial to the goal of consolidating authoritarian rule. And in some countries, that decision meant uh, or led to or made them uh, create organizational gatekeepers. And in other countries, it made them allow for um, the spread and the growth um, of the Salafi creed.
0: I see. It is fascinating that some authoritarian leaders as you say, in the 70s, would think of Salafis as allies and wouldn't create uh, gatekeeping organizations to actually keep a check on them. Um, so, so speaking of looking at um, um, a historical institutionalist, um, 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 so speaking of a historical institutionalist theory that you're developing in the book, I um, want to know if there are any byproducts um, of these uh, unintended outcomes that uh, that a historical institutionalist process um, uh, sort of predicts to have. Um, so just to go back, historical institutionalism suggests that institutional arrangements have outcomes in the long term, um, and it bears this idea that once you establish certain institutions or organizations, they sort of work their way through history and lead to certain outcomes. So in a way, you can't stop the process, and some of these institutions might have unintended outcomes. Um, so I wonder, with these institutions, these um, Islamic organizations that were put in place, uh, were there any unintended outcomes associated with them, and um, and, and, and whether these had um, uh, had had influence or some kind of impact on the authoritarian policies of these countries?
1: So as I said um, initially, um, state-led national Islamic associations were created and designed to undermine politically assertive Salafis. And and the fact that these organizational gatekeepers in the contemporary period uh, contain or curb jihadi Salafism is an unintended outcome. That's not why they were created. Um, The mandate of these organizations changed in the early 90s. um, And in the book, I explain this in in greater detail. And and I explained how the informal mandate changed and now these organizations began to to accommodate quietist Salafism in the religious sphere. Um, So so the main outcome in a way is an unintended outcome, Um, but but minor changes um, do occur downstream to, to use that historical institutionalist term. Um, another outcome, but that would be an intended outcome, is in the contemporary period in countries like um, Niger or uh, Uganda or Chad, we do not see the formation um, of really influential political Salafi interest groups. That's very different in, say, Mauritania, Mali or or Kenya. Um, so, so once again, it's important to note that uh, state-led national Islamic associations um, have have very deep authoritarian origins, um, and, and they were designed to keep autocrats in place. And of course, in countries like um, Chad or Uganda, countries which did not experience meaningful political liberalization, I would argue they probably still contribute uh, to the consolidation of authoritarian rule,
0: right. I, I find it fascinating that um, that through this inductive historical comparative analysis, you were able to find out this byproduct uh, that actually comes to uh, uh, to influence the, the the contemporary politics of these countries. Um, right. So I want to focus on two cases that the book discusses to really delve deeper into the theory. Um, I have picked Uganda and Mali. Uh, so you did the case selection for the book. <laughs> I do the case selection for the podcast.
1: great um, cases.
0: <laughs> okay. So Uganda is a positive case in the book uh, in the sense that the state manages to contain Salafi elements, uh, sap- uh, especially by establishing the Ugandan Muslim Supreme Council by uh, Idi Amin. How does this institution work to regulate Salafi Islam and Salafi Muslims. I guess what I'm asking you to do is to sort of explain to us how these gatekeeping institutions work in practice, um, in this case uh, in uh, Uganda.
1: Okay, so so that's a great question that really goes to the empirical heart of the book. Um, So Uganda is a positive uh, case in the sense that um, the variable of interest, um, the presence of institutional regulation in the religious sphere, Um, um, is present. Um, The UMSC, the Ugandan Muslim Supreme Council, was indeed created in 1971 by Idi Amin, and it's very much, um, the the dynamic that led to its creation uh, very much mirror the political dynamics in other African countries where these state-led national Islamic associations uh, are formed. The UMSC Uh, came into being in response to the influx and the growth um, of sort of Arab-trained Salafi preachers um, that took on um, the already very visible authoritarian undertones um, of Idi Amin. um, And they also took on the secular nature of the post-independent Ugandan state. Uh, What Idi Amin did um, with the help of the Ministry of the Interior and civil servants that were very close to him, he initiated the formation of this new association and helped build it from scratch. Um, Actually, the constitution of the UMSC uh, was drawn up by Idi Amin and by uh, two civil servants uh, that worked in the Ministry of the Interior at the time. Um, the Amin administration subsequently forced all already existing Islamic associations uh, to join the UMSC. So, so you either had to join the UMSC and, and submit to its leadership, or your presence in the country uh, was deemed illegal or unofficial. And sort of led by secular civil servants, the UMSC began a, a process of authorizing. Uh, uh, preachers in all Friday prayer mosques. Um, And still today, the organization works very, very closely with the Ministry of the Interior. And what what the Amin administration and the Ministry of the Interior did, it instructed all official imams uh, to ban the Salafi creeds from all mosques. And what this did was um, it essentially condemned Salafism to a clandestine um, An informal presence. Um, um, and and what, what this also achieved was that the government was now in a position to provide non-Orthodox groups, so uh, the Sufi Brotherhood, with state resources to spread their interpretation um, of, of Islam's foundational texts. Um, foreign clerics. Uh, especially arab clerics had to pre-register their stay with the ministry of the interior and the government would allocate someone to them who would travel with them especially if they uh, preached anywhere outside of the capital. Um, this then changed in the late 1980s and, and in, a, in a book in the book I described the various political and social events uh, to let to to let to, to changes uh, within the informal mandate of the UMSC. Um, so, so for this podcast, I cut it really short. So, essentially, from the late 1980s onwards, Salafism became an integral part of Uganda's Islamic landscape. And under President Museveni, who is still president in Uganda today, Salafism actually became formally a part of the UMSC. Um, The arrival of Salafism as part of official Islam, however, came with strings attached. And again, these changes that occur in Uganda in the late 80s are very typical of the changes that occur um, in other African countries that had state-led national Islamic associations in place. So, So based on a mutual understanding, Uh, All members of the UMSC, including Salafis, would not challenge state authority. That's the informal condition attached to becoming part of official Islam in Uganda. So um, um, in the 1990s, Salafi clerics formed the Justice Forum, which was a political movement very critical of President Museveni. Um, And once that movement gained some ground, the UMS, UMSC began to identify justice forum supporters and co-opted them into leaving the party. Um, it either co-opted them or, or it, it, it isolated them from the Friday prayer mosques. So that's one example, one empirical example, how the UMSC helped contribute toward um, the isolation of political Salafism. Again, for an authoritarian purpose. But also, um, the UMSC um, played a huge role in the demobilization of homegrown jihadi salafism. Um, The most prominent case, of course, being the allied democratic forces, which in recent years has emerged as a security threat in the Congo, but it emerges in Uganda. And it's very interesting, of course, that today, the ADF is no longer a kind of substantial security threat in Uganda But it's a movement that that had to leave the country. And and I argue in the book that in no small part, that is due to the collaboration between the state and the UMSC. And it was through regular consultation between the state, quietest Salafis and the UMSC, that state authorities were able to identify and isolate um, jihadi ideologues or to co-opt them or to ban them from Uganda's territory. And so the Ugandan state um, avoided the kind of indiscriminate violent repression and those indiscriminate violent crackdowns that have played a key role in the radicalization of the Salafi faithful in other countries, most notably uh, in neighboring Kenya. The UMSC also played a key role in the amnesty program that the Museveni government put in place in the early 2000s, um, which further demobilized uh, the ADF on Uganda's soul. Um, And and actually, Uganda is the only African country where we see um, a rapid decline of homegrown jihadi Salafi ideology um, and activity. Uh, um, um, There is no other country uh, in Africa where... Once homegrown jihadi salafism emerged as a critical threat, where that threat went down. So, so I've I've long argued that many of the countries in the in in the Sahel, uh, countries like Mali or Mauritania, um, can learn a lot from from uh, uh, organizations such as the UMSC in Uganda.
0: That's a great example of uh, how these gatekeeping institutions work in practice. Um, thank you. All right, let's turn to Mali, which is a negative case in the book um, and where Salafism did take root, uh, homegrown jihadi Salafism. And I want to start with a moment in history that I distinctly remember. Um, it is the year 2013, and jihadi Salafi forces have occupied northern Mali and established an Islamic state, pretty much like ISIS in Syria and Iraq. And France intervenes and ends the occupation. So I was doing research on the European Union at the time and and I interviewed the French foreign minister who said that there was very little political will on the part of the EU to intervene in Mali and the European countries um, thought that it was France's responsibility as a former colonizer to end this standoff. So the French military intervened that year and ended the occupation, but Northern Mali, as we know, has remained um, unstable since. Now, this is happening in a country that you mentioned in the book, in the 1960s had a very small Salafi minority. Now, I have two questions about this. Number one, Mali did establish one of these gatekeeping institutions. Uh, It was an Islamic association called Association Malienne pour l'Unité et le Progrès de l'Islam, the Malian Association for Unity and Progress of Islam. But it could not regulate Salafi elements in the country. So how did Mali go from a small Salafi minority in the 60s to a full occupation of the northern part of the country by Salafi jihadis in 2013. And the second question is how did France perceive of this occupation and why did they quickly mobilize um, to stop it?
1: Great questions. So so with regard to what happened in Mali, I see uh, really two variables operating there. Um, one is external. Um, the other one is internal. I want to start with the internal one because this book is largely about domestic politics and domestic gatekeepers. Um, you're correct, the Malian Association for Unity and Progress did not regulate Islamic activity because it was never meant to do that. It is what I refer to in a book um, as an Islamic federation, which is conceptually very different from a state-led National Islamic Association. Um, And and as I alluded to earlier, it's actually the Malian Salafi movement that used the Malian Association for Unity and Progress uh, uh, to spread nationwide. Uh, And and so already in Mali by the 1980s, Salafism, um, in this case, quietist and political Salafism, already had emerged as an influential societal and political force. Um, The second thing that happened that is clearly external are the events of Algeria and the spread and the migration of uh, jihadi ideologues from Algeria uh, to Northern Mali. Um, Where, of course, because of the absence of the state, Uh, in general, but also because of the absence of the state in religious affairs or the lack of steerage capacity for the state in the religious sphere, um, they found a fertile ground um, to proselectalize, um, 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 to spread, um, and and to promote uh, 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 their their ideology. Um, Some scholars have argued that the disintegration of Libya is the key reason for uh, why we're seeing what we're seeing in Mali, for me, the disintegration of Libya is one reason, and and uh, I, I would argue a less relevant reason for why we are seeing what we are seeing in Mali. For me, it is the combination of um, of this lack of steering capacity uh, uh, in the religious sphere combined with the influx. Um, of jihadi ideologues from from Algeria. Um, why did so so? Um, I wouldn't necessarily call so so. It's correct what you said. I think there is there is very little to no um, appetite within the European Union uh, uh, to challenge uh, uh, French intellectual leadership toward uh, uh, West Africa. I I think that's a bad thing. I don't think that's a good thing. Um, but but it is true that the European Union in its foreign policy making and in its strategic planning um, intellectually has been lazy uh, uh, toward uh, a francophone Africa in particular precisely because it simply says we can delegate that all of that to the French because they know best. Um, and that has not worked. All that well. I wouldn't necessarily say though that the French interfe- intervened fast. So the occupation of Mali's north started in January 2012. It progressed relatively smoothly. So by mid 2012, um, Mali's northern territory was um, maybe not occupied but definitely controlled by various jihadi forces. And it then took another half a year um, for any Western power to react militarily. That's because the European Union and the United States were waiting for ECOWAS to put together an intervention force. This intervention force did not come about. And there were estimates that it would take ECOWAS at least another year to be ready militarily. Um, And it was the moment in time when the jihadi forces crossed into southern Mali and a widespread concern that they would have an opportunity uh, to occupy important military strategic points um, in southern Mali that the French, um, with the support of the United States and the European Union, uh, interfered. Um, I do think that there was also little appetite in, in, in France for this at the time, and I think the European Union and the United States were... Uh, were relieved um, that that the French sort of uh, came to the military rescue of Mali. And there was enormous relief in Mali, um, at least at the beginning of the French military intervention, um, that that the French were in in a position and were willing um, to take back northern Malis from the jihadis. As as you said, um, by now, this situation has changed again. Um, large parts of Mali's territory in the north and in the center are again under the control um, of of a wide variety of of jihadi Salafi groups.
0: Interesting. Um, I want to talk about the policy implications of the book, but before we get to that, I want to ask about the last chapter of the book, or one of the last chapters, where you test um, your theory with qualitative comparative analysis, QCA, Um, Now, we know that QCA is used for analyzing medium-sized data which is perfect for the book because uh, it studies countries in sub Saharan Africa and there's just so many of them. Um, so tell us about the specific kind of QCA that you use, which is CRISP-SET qualitative configurative analysis. And what is um, the added benefit to the analysis once you end up testing um, these cases?
1: Okay, so so great question again. So the main method of the book is comparative process tracing. But, but what I do in this last chapter is... I add CRISP-SET, QCA, because it's one way to illustrate uh, the effect of different state strategies. So, so far, all that we've done is uh, we talked about institutional regulation through organizational gatekeepers. So so that's just one strategy the, the state may pursue, and it's the strategy that's at the heart of the book. But in total, the book refers to, I think, a total of five state strategies so the state can pursue more than one strategy at any one time, and the state can, of course, pursue different strategies at different moments in time. and And configurational and analysis uh, allows us to to identify uh, uh, conditions, or in this case, strategies that can be seen as as necessary or sufficient condition across time and across different cases. And and what Crisp said, QCA. Uh, um, shows in this last chapter is that the presence of institutional regulation uh, qualifies both as an individually necessary and individually sufficient condition for the absence of homegrown jihadi Salafism. Uh, Interestingly, it it also shows us um, that the collaboration of the state uh, with Salafism, what I label as concessions, and the indiscriminate repression of Salafism by the security forces both lead to the same outcome, which is the escalation of homegrown jihadi Salafism. So, so the interesting finding here is that sort of um, unchecked religious liberty uh, leads to the same outcome as indiscriminate violent repression um, in weak states in in, in which we have uh, a jihadi uh, ideology um, um, operating. So, so and 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 uh, QCA. Um, uh, allows allows me um, to to highlight those findings uh, um, and and to demonstrate them. It's it's one way of systematizing your findings from qualitative comparative research at the medium end level.
0: Great. I've of course read other works by you that use uh, QCA unpublished work. Yeah. So I I really recommend uh, picking up that last chapter of the book if somebody is interested in um in using Q- QCA. Uh, all right. So. That leads me to the policy implications of the book. Uh, you sort of hinted at what uh, potentially Mali, Mauritania or Kenya could do now that they face a uh, homegrown Salafi jihadist activity on their terrain um, to, to varying degrees. Um, can you tell us like concretely um, what are the policy implications of the theory are?
1: Okay, so, so there are different policy recommendations um for for different countries that are currently experiencing uh, 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 regular and and larger scale um, um, jihadi Salafi activism um so so the recommendations are different for for Mali and Mauritania on the one hand and and Kenya on the other yeah. um, Mali and Mauritania of course are both uh, um, Muslim majority countries um, um and, and as a result, um, the government in place enjoys a very different degree of legitimacy than in Kenya, um, where uh, the government is is Christian dominated. I, I think Mali and Mauritania um, should try and regain some steering capacity in the religious sphere. Um, Mauritania has tried to do so in recent years, but it has done so half-heartedly. Um, Mali hasn't done that. That at all, and I, I discussed my book and and the findings from this book with um, Malian and Mauritanian uh, administrators, and in some cases even ministers, and and they would agree with this assessment. Um, Mauritania has been fortunate in the sense that um, its own radicalized jihadi elements. Um, largely left the country, and and that's why we find such a large uh, Mauritanian contingent among um, among the various jihadi groups that are operating uh, uh, in in Mali. So so um, so I think that um, the the book is considerable in nuance, though, and I guess later we'll talk a little bit about this about the extent to which uh, states should learn from authoritarian institutions. Um, um, The extent to which the state should um, constrain or become involved with religious activity is hugely controversial um, all across the world. And different states across the world have arrived at different conclusions about how much the state should become involved with the religious fear. Because religious freedom in principle is, not in principle, is is a basic human right. Um, The question is, um, so so the question is, to what extent um, should the state um, confine that right at all? Um, That's a political question. And there have been uh, great books, and I want to cite the book by Anthony Gill here, um, that show complete religious liberty um, hardly exists anywhere in the world. The question then becomes, um, you know, when is there state overreach um, that's a question for malian and mauritanian politicians but i think um, they sort of freely admit that um, certain events in their respective religious fears are have now become um or have reached a, a state where that's far beyond of what the state can control and and that constitutes a very serious um security threat Um, So Kenya is a very different case. It's it's clearly a case where homegrown radicalization is the result of indiscriminate repression. Um, And so my policy recommendation um, to the Kenyan government would be start viewing the Muslim minority in your country as as equal citizens and and collaborate with Salafi clerics uh, who in the past have become victims of uh, jihadi Salafi activity. That's that's an important thing that's often overlooked in the public debate, that uh, first of all, um, the, 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 the prime victims of jihadi Salafi activity are Muslims and very often actually um, quietist or political Salafi them, uh, preachers themselves. So um, that's clearly the case in Kenya, where, where sort of political and quietist Salafi clerics um, turn to the state um, and ask for, to be heard um, as mediators uh, between state authority um, and jihadi Salafi groups, and the Kenyan state ignored that, and it ignored an opportunity here. Um, so, so here my policy recommendation would be uh, to seek closer cooperation with um, with the Islamic sphere, because it's often the case that the Kenyan government views Islam uh, solely through through security lenses and and views Islam uh, itself as a security threat, and and that's one reason why jihadi Salafi preacher uh, preachers had such an easy time um, recruiting followers.
0: I see. Those are um, interesting uh, policy implications that um, that uh, that sort of come from the theory. So if you don't mind now, in the little time that remains for us, I want to take us um, uh, out of Africa, a big step out of Africa, and see the broader applications of your theory. I want you to apply parts and parcels of your theory to Europe and the United States. Um, uh, Sebastian, since I started reading your book, I've been thinking about a specific event in Europe in the year 2014. Um, as you know, Europe experienced a handful of horrific terrorist attacks around uh, 2014 on the Jewish Museum in Brussels, on the office of Charlie Hebdo in, um, uh, in Paris, on the Jewish supermarket in Paris, the concert hall in Paris, uh, by so-called uh, Salafi jihadists. In the same year, in 2014, um, the university where I was doing my master's, University of Leuven, introduced a major in Islamic Theology, So you could do a master's in Islam in Leuven, uh, Belgium. Now, the, uh, the, the University of Leuven is a Catholic school. Um, it is, used to be called the Katholieke Universiteit Leuven in Dutch. And it's a little weird um, to go to Leuven uh, to learn about Islam or to do a master's in Islamic theology. So I was living in Brussels at the time and was working in Paris and was doing research on the terror attacks and the introduction of this master's program in Islam. And um, I interviewed the Flemish Minister of Education to find out if these two events were related the terrorist attacks, and the introduction of uh, Islamic theology at the university. It turns out they were. (laughs) So facing this challenge of so-called homegrown terrorism in Europe, the French and Belgian governments uh, turned their attention to Salafi mosques, which were funded by Saudi Arabia and had Saudi imams. And they sort of, connected the dots and said, well, these mosques are responsible for radicalizing French and Belgian youth. And if we were to stop this process, we need to regulate how Islam is taught and who teaches Islam, something that was never done before, because Belgium and France were never interested in regulating Islamic activity. So Pascal Smet, uh, the Flemish Minister of Education at the time, uh, told me that by offering courses on Islam at the university, Belgium was trying to uh, quote-unquote, professionalize an Islamic cadre that is trained in Flanders and knows the Belgian society so that imams do not have to be, quote-unquote, imported from abroad to teach Islam in Belgium. Uh, to what extent do you think you're theory applies in cases of homegrown Salafi jihadism in Belgium and France or other European countries. Can we say that these countries never built the gatekeeping institutions that we talked about and never intervened, so to say, in the Islamic sphere and thus uh, fell in the trap of homegrown Salafi jihadism?
1: That's a really great and very difficult question to answer, but I'll I'll try and talk a little bit about um, about what you just described. Um, So so I would say I think that radicalization processes in Europe differ um, a lot from radicalization processes in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I had the opportunity in Mauritania and Kenya to speak extensively with clerics and followers who at one point or another had been leaders of or followers of jihadi Salafi groups. Um, Mm. They argued that for them mm, what happens in Friday prayer mosques was crucial and and that they found their way into these organizations mm, because of what some people um, taught in those mosques. Um, I'm not sure this also holds in Europe. I think radicalization processes in Europe um, have different origins. Um, I'm not I'm not an expert in in state Islamic relations in Europe, so everything I'm saying here comes comes with that that qualifier. I think it makes a difference also. Um, whether you are in a Muslim majority country or in a Muslim minority country. And I think being um, an immigrant in contemporary European societies, um, you, you, you are facing obstacles and, and uh, maybe very often also a cultural alienation um, and you're experiencing the kind of day-to-day racism that... Uh, many Muslims are experiencing um, all over Western Europe um, that that might lead to policy solutions that are more comprehensive than the supervision of Friday prayer. Now, having said that, we do know from the radicalization literature coming out of Western Europe um, that what happens in Friday prayer mosques sort of matters. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't discard my findings for for policymaking in Europe. However, I would argue that there are probably other policy recommendations for Western Europe um, that might be um, more efficient and that might be more relevant than um, what I found in sub-Saharan Africa. However, um, and in this context, I really want to, want to mention the book by Jonathan Lawrence, which is called The Emancipation of Europe's Muslims. That's that's really a great book, and it refers to um, what you just mentioned, namely that European countries now, for the first time in history, make a substantial effort of creating something that can be labeled French or Belgium or, or German or Italian Islam. And and they do so uh, by providing spaces for the training and the education um, of clerics that are not trained in Saudi Arabia, but that are trained in the respective countries. And that's new because in the past, European countries would have a hard time and would be unwilling uh, to recognize um, that you know European Muslims are now French, German, Belgian, Austrian citizens. So on the one hand um um what you are referring to is is a kind of attempt to defend secular societies uh from radicalization efforts on the other hand it it it, it is an attempt um to um to emancipate um and 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 to make uh europe's muslim population uh, uh um part of Um, the European citizenry which of course has existed on paper but we all know uh, from the literature about migration and racism in Western Western Europe has yet to become a political reality so so I do think those are the right steps um, as long as the political intention here is um, minority integration Um, I also think that Um, a focus solely on what happens in mosques uh, can have detrimental consequences and, again, lead to further alienation and radicalization. So I would argue that that this notion of creating um, um, state-supervised religious spaces in Europe should be accompanied um, by policies um, that emancipate Muslim minorities politically and, and economically. And, and, and I think uh, they both have to do together. I, I, I do not think that the supervision of mosques on its own uh, will lead to the desired outcome, precisely because I think radicalization processes in, in Europe are different um, and, and that the political and economic context in which it occurs differs significantly from sub-Saharan Africa.
0: That's a great insight. Thank you. All right. Um, This was a great conversation, Sebastian. I wish I could go on with my questions, but every podcast has to come to an end. Uh, I want to give our listeners the chance to read the book and discover its sophisticated theory and richness of detail on their own. So thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: The book we discussed was Salafism and Political Order in Africa by Sebastian Elischer published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.